From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with my longtime collaborators and friends, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. We are expecting Audie Weiner to slide in here momentarily. He might still be in mourning for the loss of his 2023 season. Four plays into it. Could be, could be he's not dug out from that little incident last night. But we we will talk about that. We will talk about many other things coming up. We have a great guest at the bottom of the hour. Ari Wasserman, athletic college football writer, is going to join us to talk about all things college football in the second half of the show. First half of the show, open lines. We have just come through, all the way through since it's Tuesday, all the way through the first weekend of the NFL season. It is off and running. Want to hear about that, fellas? Going to need to hear about the U.S. Open. Just wrap that up over the weekend. And then it is getting to be crunch time in baseball as well. The two teams y'all pull forward, less interesting than usual, but the rest of the league, very interesting. All right, that's kind of the agenda. Let's start with NFL. Around the horn, we had Thursday, Sunday, Monday, top impressions from the first weekend, guys. Yeah, I mean, the way I tend to think about it is who at least was competitive in the first week. And so, you know, if I were a Steeler fan, I would be overly, I'd be a little bit concerned, a little more concerned than I was. Um, obviously, if I were a Giant fan, I'd be a little bit concerned there. Um, I just thought, you know, Seahawks, I think, were supposed to be pretty good and got routed in the second half at home against the Rams. Um, so these were teams that just, I think, had reasonable, I'm not saying they can't turn it around, but had reasonable to high expectations that just didn't look good out of week one. So those were the three, I would say, teams with moderate to high expectations that were most shocking to me. Real quickly, are you finding, is your intuition that extremely poor performance is more diagnostic than extremely good in this this first week? Is that underlying? Yeah, I, I even want to look a little bit under the hood. Like, let's imagine, you know, let's even think about the Massey Peabody system or any reasonable system that has an offensive and defensive strength that it tries to measure. Um, I think if you were to measure those teams on both of those all those three teams on those dimensions, the metrics would suggest they not only were outscored, but performed poorly. I think we can't just look at the score to say yeah. how poorly those teams performed. Yeah, and I mean, I, I mean, I think I, I personally, I, I try not to take too much out of week one. I think we are so prone to re- overreacting. But, you know, when you sort of see things that are basically continuing trends from what we observed last season, that kind of gives it a little bit more kind of staying power prognostic value to me. Like, for example, Josh Allen still struggling, still leading the league in turn. You know, I mean, he struggled with turnovers all last year and turned the ball over like crazy again last night. Pittsburgh's, you know, offensive struggles like you know we were well documented last year we i think a lot of people believe themselves into being there would be a much improved team doesn't seem like that's the case at least based on one week you know it's also interesting shane all three teams i mentioned you know yeah it's hard to win on the road in the nfl actually those three teams i'll mention were all played at home yeah so that that's another you know you only get a certain number of home games and if we believe there's some you know three point home two three point home field so now those teams have lost. That's what I would say. When you go 0-1 and, and that first game's at home, that already puts you, you know, you have to say, well, you know, we want to go at least five and three. Let's say there's eight home games. Could be nine, but let's assume eight for the moment. Well, now you got to go five and two at home in the rest of those games to have a winning record at home. That's not easy to do in the NFL. Odd. Adi Weiner is here. What's up, Adi? Yeah, I'm absolutely here. I, I watch a lot of football. What do you think is the um, the overreaction of the moment. In other words, I, I, I watched part of the game with a real good, good buddy of mine from, from Pittsburgh. And he would, I watched the Eagles game and he was just devastated after the Pittsburgh loss. And he was like, everyone's so excited. And, um, and uh, I had to tell him, I said, listen, it's, it's one game. I, I mean, you discard all of the, the, the preseason information with one game. 
You don't, don't mean preseason do. game information. No, you, yeah, you, pre-season, I, 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 pre-season, you, you, you discard that before even seeing the first game. I know. He, he meant information. He meant priors. He meant you priors. made prior based on like last that season. So, Adi, this is the positive way you could spin that game, maybe. So, San Francisco's an elite team, and which they are, and they performed. I'm just saying why you could spin it. And they performed two touchdowns better than expected. The Steelers are a medium to decent team, and they performed two touchdowns worse than they expected. So, yeah, maybe a 7 to 10 point San Francisco win was expected, but nobody expected whatever it was, 25, 30 point San Francisco win. And that's the way you could view it. Maybe San Francisco overperformed, maybe Pittsburgh underperformed, but their true strengths need San Francisco's not really, really that good, and maybe Pittsburgh's not really that bad. I, I'm going to throw out another one, which is is there any analysis that shows that excess amount of information is learned in the first game of the season than you would expect from a, a, any random game. Why would that be? I don't think so. But, uh, but I, there is this incredible pressure. I feel like on that first game that this is an interesting statistical that. issue you bring up Adi, because as you know, let's be Bayesians for a second. That's the only coherent way to do inference. So it's easy to be Bayesian. <laughs> you have a prior distribution going into the season, right? And as you know, as you add information in a Bayesian way, the amount of updating, Bayesian updating from your prior, you observe some information, and now you have a posterior, does shrink over time. I mean, if you don't change the informativeness of the signal, by adding a signal, first game, second game, third game, the amount of movement does go down. That's the way the Bayesian mathematics... Assuming you're measuring a stationary target... I, I uh, well, two things. One and is team the, ability the, isn't changing over time, and and of course the error variance, the signal inform informativeness is not changing. But typically, you would expect the most movement from that week's prior from the first game of the season. On you would expect that unless unless your prior was already kind of calibrated to kind of be worth the first six games of the you, you know like like. If, if you were, tre- you know, you know, I, I mean, we, we can come up with exceptions, but broadly, yeah. this is true. And so, yeah. one of the one of the one of the general prescriptions is yes, you should be more responsive to early. I mean, we want to keep we want, we think a lot of people are overreacting. We overreact; it's human tendency. Mm-hmm. But you are responding more early than late because you. But let's be clear, Kate. What you're saying is this is cru- I think this is crucial for our listeners here on Work Moneyball to understand. We're not saying place more weight on it. We're just saying the mathematics of it says that when that with a single observation is added to the prior, as opposed to week 15's observation added to the prior and 14 games of information, the movement from week 15 minus Shane's yeah. caveats will have less of an impact. But it's not like we're putting extra weight on week one versus 15. That's no. exactly what we're not doing. As a matter of fact, you could make an argument you should do the opposite. Your later games are more informative because of non-stationarity. And therefore, you could make the opposite argument. Let, let me let me put it in the in the form of um, of Laplace, right? So the Laplace smoothing method, which is really easy to explain and works great with sports, is pad the season with a number of games in proportion to what you think the true strength of the team is. So if you think a team is supposed to end the, the season uh, winning sixty percent of the games, you'd pad the season with six with a bunch of games where they win sixty percent and lose the remainder. In baseball, the, the padding is 30 games. So if you think a team's going to win 60, 60% of their games at the end of the season, you pad them with uh, 18 and 12, right? Uh, In, this, yeah. is, this is, a, this is a, a way to operationalize a prior, right? And That's exactly yeah. what it is. It's, it's a beta a, binary. And when you it's say a, it's a, it's it a, is 30 for baseball, 30 has been found to kind of have yeah, the best predicts well, right? predictive nice power, power out of all choices. Yeah. And, and I didn't do it. I'm just quoting other people's analysis. Yeah. Um, and just, I've also heard this talked about in terms of fictitious sample size. You're, you're, that's you're, yeah. You can view it as they go into the season with 18 wins and 12 losses. Then you just add wins and losses. And that's the, that's the yeah. classic Bader Bernoulli. That's dish. how we kind of, just, in Bayesian classes, just, we always call them pseudo counts or pseudo yeah. observations. Yeah. Just to be clear, just to be clear, you're, whatever you believe, whatever your prior is, you're going to wait at 30 games. So for some teams, it's 60% win probability. You're going to give 30 games, so it's going to be, you know, 18. For some, it'll be 50, 50, a yeah. 500 record. For some, it'll be a 400 record. Okay, gotcha. That's right. It's all so 30 games. Okay. 
And it's a beautiful way to operationalize a, a calculation, right? That, that, that takes the calculation itself is sophisticated, but the operation of it is simple. So we love it. Okay. So another way, there are some implications here. So this says that after 30 games of regular season, your prior is going to weigh half of your judgment. Right. And at right. the end of the season, it's going to be one. But just to my point, Cade, just to my point, let's, let's say in football, let's just say for the moment it was worth four games. Or five. And, and so you, let's say it was worth five. I don't know that it is, but let's just say it was. So now you're three and two going into the season. Now you win a game. You move to four and two in pseudo count. That changes you from 60% to 66%. If you won later in the season when your pseudo count total is not five, but 20, now you win a game and the change in percentage goes is smaller because of the larger pseudo count. How would you, you're, what is it you're talking about? What is 0.67? Now that you go to quote Oh, four well, you're two, four and what two. Is, what is it though? What are you saying? Oh, I'm saying if you treat these as fictitious or I'll use Shane's words, pseudo wins. I, I, I think what you're saying, Kate, is what, what you're estimating is the underlying team ability. That's it. It's that's actually, the, that's right. That's what you're doing. And so you start with a prior and then by the time the season's over, you still have an estimate because you don't know the true underlying yeah. team ability and you've just revised that prior with the data. But I think, you know, Eric, you, you tossed out a number. I think it'll be fun for us to think about without doing a calculation. What exactly. is that number? Is it four games or five games? And, and, and it's not 30, that's baseball. It's, it's not one. That's too little information, but is it three or is it? Well, the way, th- the way I would think about it is I, I'm going to back into it by thinking at the end of the season, how much weight do I think should be on the priors? And so I've, I've got an advantage here because I've used, these models over the years, this is what we do with Massey Peabody. And so I have a sense, I have a, I have an estimate and that's how I get to it. It's what I want my priors to be at the end of the season. And I think this is terrifically useful judgment because again, it says something about at what point in the season is your opinion of a team equally weighted between what you've seen on the field that season and what you thought coming in. So I can put bounds on my estimate, given you framed it that way, which I think is excellent, Cade. I would say eight seems way too high to me. And I would say, because I would say halfway, I, I think I would count the season more than the prior by the time I reached eight. So I'm going to say somewhere around four or five, four, like quarter of the way through the season, I would put equal weight. That's for me. I would be, I would maybe just do a little bit higher, maybe six or so, just because there's a lot of schedule variance and stuff like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, 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 it's funny. I'm gonna. I think you. I was my leaning. I was leaning towards five, which of course splits you guys right down the middle. But that seems unfair. I'm wondering whether or not that should be a team by team basis. Like, well, that's you know, certainly. I kind of feel like I, I don't know if the binomial would take care of this naturally, but yeah. like a team that's terrible, I think we know. You know. You don't need yeah. that many pseudo counts. Like, if you start seeing a couple, you know, if if you kind of, yeah. Really well, hold on. Teams, so that's think, that's that second. Shane wants to put 0 and 50 on the Cardinals because he knows <laughs> they're going to stink. But a team well, that could be good, like the Steelers, he might want to put three and three. Great examples. So, Perfect. You mean examples. Adi? Adi's suggesting it, and I think it's a terrific exercise. I do think it's second order. First, let's get the over the average yeah, prior. Agree. I want to hear from you. It's going to be harder to get that 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 variation, but it, I can tell you that that me and Rufus. And a, and a new collaborator had this conversation yesterday with college football. Like, how can we get some sense of where the prior should be weaker? I mean, the, the obvious thing is, what are you doing with Deion Sanders in Colorado this year? I mean, there's an argument to be made that your prior should be completely uninformative, completely uninformative. And if not completely, then, you know, certainly very weak. And that's not true of everybody else. And so then you can generalize from there. You're like, well, maybe it's some function of the number of transfers. Maybe it's some function of the turnover and the coaching staff. So you're onto something odd, but it is, it is a little bit second work. I'll give you my number. I think of it as being one third at the end of the season, which historically will have been five and a third. And now yeah. it be whatever, five and you know two thirds or something. Right, so right around close, what we said, I guess. Yeah, yeah, real close to what you guys were saying. All right. Well, that's a, that's, I think if you, if we, if we take that seriously, then our reactions, I mean, think about it, guys, then we should have our our opinion on any given team right now should be five, six, you know, to six sevenths our prior and only one sixth yeah. 
or so. So, I mean, the Chiefs are still yeah. like five and one or something like that. We're not particularly <laughs> worried about that. No, they're probably four and one. They're probably, yeah. Five. But I will find out my response to, to, to my friend Charlie, if he's listening, which, he's, which he might, would be sit Pittsburgh ins. It's not over yet. Yeah, that's right. I think that I think we just talked ourselves into reacting less than we were inclined to react when we first started the conversation. Yeah. For sure. All right, guys, let's talk about US Open. And as I said on the text thread over the weekend, I haven't watched this. I watched more tennis over the last weekend than I did the previous 20 years. I was hanging with friends who were a little tennis crazy, and it happened to be one of the best tennis watching weekends. I mean, the Friday night match, Medvedev and Alcaraz, and then the Saturday match with Goff was just terrific. We got I got lucky I landed with these guys on just the right weekend. I, some of y'all watch more attention tennis than, than others. Eric, what are your thoughts coming out of this weekend? Yeah, so I thought, uh, let's start with the first match you mentioned, the Alcaraz-Medvedev semifinal. I thought Alcaraz played absolutely horribly. I, I don't think, I think this was a referendum more on he's got still high variance of play than it was that Medvedev played so fantastically. I just thought Alcaraz didn't look like his normal self. You know, you have distributions and, you know, there's maybe a bimodal distribution. I, I, this, is a, this is one of these high-level things that I always want. When I do watch tennis, I end up wanting – I want to be calibrated for how I know the outcome, how much of it is a player's opponent doing well and how much is a person a player's own performance being weak. You know, unforced errors, service faults, all that kind of stuff. I want it – I want it – coded and scored i want to know where on the dimension the outcome was a result of one person's playing well versus the other person playing poorly i, I in my case i would say the determinant of that match we, we, i'll look at the data and i'll post it up on at w moneyball was i thought uh alcaraz's return of service was horrific in the match and i think he basically wasn't even competitive in medvedev games and Medvedev wasn't serving anything astronomically well, although he is a very good server. I just thought Alcaraz had to basically hold all of his games and basically hope to win in tie breaks. His service return was off. He just wasn't returning the ball well. Okay, well, let's flip it around. I, the only analysis that I have seen on this was from Jeff Sackman. And if I'm yeah. not mistaken, Jeff posted something. He's been a, a guest of ours many times. He posted something on Twitter over the weekend about Medvedev's return of serve. And the, 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 if I'm not mistaken, he was talking about you can judge it by how often the other player scores wins um, in response to the return of serve. I may have so the plus one serve plus one. Yeah, that's what they call plus serve like plus that, one. So Alcaraz serves, Medvedev returns. If it's yeah. a good serve, Medvedev maybe gets it back, but then Alcaraz should be able to put it away on the next shot. That's the classic serve plus one. And we've also not just Jeff. Um, I forget the brain games tennis guy said, you know, 80% of all tennis points are basically or some massive fraction end within four shots. And most of them are the serve plus one. Okay. So, so what Sackman was doing was looking at what Medvedev did to Alcaraz's serve plus one. And he, his winning percentage on the serve plus one was dramatically below what it typically is because of his ability to return so well. Oh, wait. After the match, that is consistent with what Alcaraz said. Alcaraz said, I didn't think Medvedev's returns were as good as they were going to be. Or he thought they were better than they were going to be. And um, and if, and actually what Alcaraz, but sorry, Medvedev did in that match, I've never seen someone stand so far back. Unbelievable. Even, even farther back than Nadal stands back on clay, which I mean, is, yeah. I'm not, again, it's like, it's like, it's fun to watch these things only every few years because you feel like kind of a Martian. And when the Martian watches those guys play, it's like, hold on, this is different than it used to be. That guy is so far below the baseline. How does he cover that much court? And he's he's long, obviously six six or something, but also fast. And I, I remember thinking about this overnight after watching that match, and just the dominant feeling was how much court is covered these days between Alcaraz's athleticism and Medvedev's length. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I, Eric, I've wondered what would it be like to have you know John McEnroe play these guys. John McEnroe, nineteen eighty play Medvedev in 2023 just it feels like the space is different just such different athletes I mean I'm McEnroe you know what Mac, it's what you just described McEnroe lefty would hit every serve out wide especially on the you know on the ad court and then he'd come to the net and then the question is can he put it away at the plus one 
And that would be the entire match. If McEnroe wins enough serve and plus one points from the ad court, he'd win the match. But to me, that that match was I wasn't excited by that match. Um, I thought Coco Goff were actually I, good news is the women's match was first on Saturday. The men's is Sunday. It reminded me of, of uh, Djokovic. She shrunk the court for Sabalenka. Sabalenka could not hit a winner in the second and third set. You could not get the ball past Coco Goff. So Sabalenka had to hit four, five, six, seven shots to hit a winner. And eventually she'd hit one the net. She'd hit one wide. It's basically what Djokovic does to you. You can't hit the ball past him. So you have to hit really close to the lines and you add error variance when you do that. And that's what Coco Goff, remember Coco Goff after the match said, I played terribly. What I won with was my athleticism and my ability to track every ball down. She wow. said she, she did not think she played particularly well in the match. And mm-hmm. I think that's what, when I watched Djokovic play against Medvedev, you watch at least the second set of that match and you're like, how did Djokovic win that match? Well, when you don't make unforced errors and you track every ball down, the other person's going to start making errors. And that's what happened. But Djokovic now, the over-under on Djokovic has to be close to 30. Yeah. It has to. You're talking about the number of Grand Slam titles. Yeah. I mean, he's got 24. He's got, you know, I don't know. I mean, he says he's going to play his, his coach, even Isovich, said he's planning on playing in the Olympics in 2018. So that's five more years of play. That's 20 Grand Slams. Um, he's now officially won a third of every Grand Slam he's played in. He's played in 72, and he's won 24. Of those 72, by the way, he's made 36 finals. So he's made half the finals, and he's won two-thirds of those finals. He's 24 and 12 in finals. How, ma- how many did he lose because of the COVID thing? Just for, like, I don't want to go down too far down that rabbit hole, but I think he he, he knocked himself out of well, at least two. one, at least a U.S. Open and a Wimbledon. And remember yeah. also, uh, Shane, when uh, the one year he had won the first two, remember he hit the ball by accident to the throat of the yeah, ball person and was disqualified in the middle of the tournament. Um, <laughs> so he could easily have 26, 25, 26, yeah, exactly. 25, 26. But again, you know, it's just an NP problem. If he plays 20 more majors, which is feasible at this point and wins a quarter of them, it's 29. One a year for the next five years. That's not impossible. I mean, this is just completely obviating the conversation we had for years about who of the big three is going to end up with the most titles. I mean, and by the end of the conversation, at the way it presently looks, it's not going to be close. Yeah, he wasn't even is- playing when we first started having that Federer versus Nadal <laughs> conversation, right? <laughs> or you know what he had, Shane, just quickly, he probably had, when we were discussing that, he probably had seven or eight majors. Who would have thought he'd win 17 in the last eight years? Like his win percentage is 50% over the last seven or eight years, at least. Remarkable. Well, um, let's shift gears in our final topic and talk about Major League Baseball playoffs. We've got an interesting set of races in both leagues and at both the pennant level and the wild card level. They're kind of different across the leagues, of course, but lots of interesting races. Is there anything in particular you're excited about, and why is it the AL East without the Sox and Yankees? I mean, the Orioles, can they hold on? Can they hold on to this three-game lead over the Rays? They've got a series with them, I think, right now. I think the uh-huh. Orioles, I'm cheering for the Orioles to make it to 100 wins because I think going from 100 losses two years ago to 100 wins this year <laughs> is such, I'm not even sure a team's ever done that before. I've, there's a few that have, you know, gone from 90 losses to 90 wins, but that's such an improvement. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think well, what I think the battle that what you're pointing out, Kate, is it does sort of matter quite a bit on winning the division versus the wild card. Okay. And it met just because of buys. And, you know, you know, the Shane Jensen theory, when you skip around, you at least double your probability. And the second thing is being the number one wild card team, like where the Phillies are, does matter as well, because there's an advantage to the being the first wild card team. So the Phillies right now are in that position. The Rays at worst are going to be the first wild card team if they don't win the division. So they don't have to worry about that. But that's why the NL wild card is so important, because for us Philly fans, um, they have they, it, it's really matters that they hold on. Yeah, though it's weird. Like spot. in the AL, would you rather be the seventh wild card or or whatever the the last wild card and play the weakest the the, the Twins, the weakest division winner, or be like a higher wild card, have a higher seeding, but then actually have to like I feel like the the top two wild card teams are more competitive than the Minnesota yep. Twins are. So I almost feel like there's a natural advantage in the AL to being the last wild card team. 
Yeah, that it, makes a lot of sense. But, but real quickly on the on the Phillies race, that NL wildcard race is a derby. I mean, I think six teams are still in yeah, it. It's, it's exciting. super interesting going down to the wire. Adi. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, you wonder about the way they do the seeding when you have such a weak division leader and they mm-hmm. have to, and you can almost game the system. That's something you don't like. I don't think these things are going to change. There's already so many damn wildcard teams in there. You, it you is can, like once the playoff field set, you might want to just seed by record and kind of ignore by the record divisions. rather than yeah. by division. There's some advantages that now that we have so many teams, it's something that yeah. it's almost conceivable with baseball. But there you have it. Um, I, you know, I, you're absolutely right. I, I, I got to look into that stat about the about the about the Orioles going from like 100 to 100. That Sig sounds- Madol, man. I mean, uh, for, you know, a friend of mine, like he's Cardinal went to the Cardinals in 05, went to the Astros in 2012, and went to like you know the Orioles like a few years ago. The guys, you know, got some Theo Epstein magic sauce. That's right. That's right. Terrific guy to boot too. It's an easy team to pull for. Adi. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's it's time to rest rest our Yankees. Um, despite all the money, despite all the analytics, despite I'm just wondering, you know, what did they do so do wrong, um, and whether it's things going to look up for next year. Well, the amazing thing is that they have good company, right? Between the Mets and the Padres and the Yankees, it's the season of massive disappointments, despite massive investment. It's really something. It's an interesting. It, 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 all of them have to answer have to be answering that question. All right, team, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball this week. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of an hour on Sports Analytics here on Sirius XM. This is Cade Massey hosting this half with Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner, two of my longtime collaborators here. Eric Bradle just stepped away. He's got some soccer watching responsibilities, parental soccer watching responsibilities to take him away for the second half of the show. We are delighted in this half of the show to welcome on Ari Wasserman. Ari is a first time guest. We are thrilled to have him on here for the first time. He is a national college football reporter at The Athletic. He is known for a number of things, some of which we are going to get into but we strongly recommend following him. One of the best ways to follow him is a new podcast athletic has going on called until Saturday. They've got something up pretty much every day, different format every day. Wasserman's on a bunch of them. You can also follow Ari on Twitter or in his writing at the athletic Ari. Good afternoon to you. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted to talk to you. We we tried to get you on the preview show. That didn't work out. And we thought, well, let's get him after week two because that's going to be Texas, Alabama. And Ari, we'll get into this in a minute. Ari's been known for a while for this philosophy of stars matter. But this summer, the summer of 23, he's been known as a Longhorn prognosticator, being way out front saying Longhorns are going to beat Alabama. Longhorns are going to beat, are going to make uh, the playoffs. You've taken a lot of flack for this. And one of the questions I'm curious about, uh, you've, you, you've, you've said, look, it wasn't me. I don't have any wins. But but still, what has been the reaction? You caught so much flack and you were so high profile in your forecast for this year's Longhorns. What's been the reaction since they did have this nice win in Tuscaloosa? Yeah, well, they haven't made the playoff yet. So, um, you know, they're, I'm not technically right. So we'll see when that happens. But the truth of the matter is, is that you know, I've been burned by by giving confidence to Texas before seasons have started the last few years. And, you know, the stars matter mantra just means that the teams that have the most best players win the most. It's not that complicated, though there's a pretty argued debate for some reason. Um, but in the past, I've looked at Texas's roster and I thought, well, this is going to be a really good because they're more in their conference. Uh, they don't really play anybody that stacks up athletically outside of Oklahoma. This will be a good year for them to break out, and they turn around and lose three or four times uh, to lower middle-tier teams in the Big 12, and it's just like, uh, I don't know how many times I can do this. And last year I swore off Texas. I thought I'm not going to get fooled again. Um, but then I actually spent the summer to you know, kind of dive into what Texas has on its roster. Um, and, of course, the data is there for – you know, the stars equation, but, you know, you have a quarterback in Quinn Ewers who uh, is coming into a very important season and you had to expect that, you know, his raw ability would develop a little bit more and he'd be more uh, of a star this year. 
I mean, you look at the receiving core uh, with A.D. Mitchell and Xavier Worthy and, you know, J.T. Sanders, the, the outstanding tight end there. Uh, and then, of course, you add into the fact that they have really good lines on both sides of the ball. And, you know, even though Texas is talented and there have been some deficiencies, those deficiencies have come to bite them a little bit. But this year, when you look at their path and their roster and, you know, the key positions necessary to win, they were very strong. And their schedule featured two games in which they, you know, could lose, you know, theoretically, not accounting for upsets, against Alabama and Oklahoma, both of whom are not peak versions of themselves. So if you look at this team, you know, it takes a leap of faith a little bit to say, hey, Sark is finally going to figure it out. And Texas is finally going to get past whatever has been cursing them for all these years. Um, but it really wasn't that big of a hot take, you know, and some people think it is because Texas has a tendency to squander some really good teams. But this team, I think more than all the other ones, actually is built to sustain success at this level. And, you know, beating Alabama on the road, I think, was a good start. I think we'll find out later down the season that Alabama's an extremely team. They're not going to be winning the national championship off of this one win. But going out on the road uh, in the second game of the season and beating Alabama by double digits could have been more, uh, not more than double digits, but more than 10 points. And, you know, kind of asserting yourself as a, a team that deserves respect, I think is a nice step forward for Sark's program. And now, of course, the ultimate test is uh, can they beat Oklahoma, which will be always an interesting game. I think they'll thump them. And whether or not they cannot step in a bear trap and lose to a Kansas State or a Texas Tech or a TCU and actually just get the job done for the first time since, I don't know, 06? 06, that's right. And, well, they had a hell of a season in 08 um, and didn't get there. And then, obviously, 09 went well for a long time as well. But um, I, I, that that all makes a lot of sense to me. And you say it wasn't that strong a take, but, it, you know, it, you, you you stood out there and took a lot of flack. And um, there, you, you had very little company, very little company out there. What do you get from going to the game? You went to this one. You know, you probably watch you, you watch a, got a lot of games in person, but you see a lot of games on TV. How, how do you, what do you think you learned differently from actually being there in person? I know it's more fun and you learned something about the atmosphere, but what did you learn from being in Tuscaloosa Saturday night that we couldn't have learned from watching it on TV? Well, I think that the thing that I learned most, I mean, if everybody who watched it on TV saw that, you know, Texas is super talented and, you know, has some players and, you know, Xavier Worthy and A.D. Mitchell might be one of the best two one-two punch combinations of receiver in the country, but it was after the game, uh, really, that kind of stood out to me of the way that people were celebrating, the, the way that that team was clinging to each other, the smile on Sark's face. Um, it wasn't just a normal. I've been to a lot of games in, in my career, and it wasn't just a normal celebration of we finally beat somebody good on the road. It was more of a celebration, almost as if the program was turning a page. You know, mm-hmm. and they've been mocked a lot of times for, you know, being tech and all. You know, I wrote in the column, they're, they're not back. They're just very good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to be very good before you're back. And, you know, I think very good is even better than being back. And, and I kind of felt like to me that that might have been a turning point in this program's trajectory. And I, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if in five or six years we go back and we, we look at the celebration that these, these players had with the fans there. Uh, who are chanting SEC and, you know, how the team ran over to the Texas section and, you know, was hugging and, you know, high-fiving players and uh, and fans and all these things that were happening. It was almost like a mass celebration of, like, finally our work is paying off. You know, and, and Steve Sarkeesian said after the game that, you know, you can't, you know, be defined by this one game or this one game won't define their season. And I think that's the right viewpoint because they still have a long way to go uh, in terms of avoiding the upset. Uh, but I just thought that the way that they played, uh, how they were, you know, how fast they are. You know, I've seen national championship teams in person, covered Ohio State for 10 years before going into this national role. I know what it looks like. And, uh, you know, Texas certainly has that look this year. So um, just after that game, it kind of seemed like it was a moment where, you know, people were turning the page. And I think that, that was a cool thing to witness. That's that's cool to hear. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you apply that same thinking to some other schools. And in the in the rhetoric around Texas this year, you, you, one my my take on your some of the things you said were 
people have this kind of easy narrative. It's too easy a narrative to say Texas hasn't done it. And you're saying just not relevant. One of the things I heard you say in a number of different places, it's not relevant what happened in, you know, 2010 or 2011. And the question is, there's a general question here of when is history relevant and when it's not, and when is it not? When we try to forecast how a program's doing, what's going to happen this year, we have to look at history, right? But when, how do you think about now? You're, you're we're analytics, but you're a good football analyst. How do you? And I think you really hit this one right. And I'm curious how we generalize it. When do we use the past and when do we not? What did? Why did people get this wrong to the extent that they did? They we don't, we, that'll be proven out over time. Yeah, well, I think history is important if you're looking at the you know recent past or you're using the same players or the same coaching staff. Uh, to use that as a measuring stick. And there is a certain history that I do think that is relevant to this Texas team, and that's that they are, are led by a coach that uh, hasn't won 10 games in his career. And he's been at some, some really good places in his past and winnable conferences and still hasn't been able to get that done. So if you are a person who doesn't believe in Steve Sarkeesian's ability to finally get a team over the hump, um, then I can see why the history there would make sense if you wanted to use it. What I don't get into is what people did to Clemson before they broke through. They have this blunting um, history of coming up short, and that just because that happened, you know, in 2010 or 11 or 9 or 12 or whatever years, you know, what happened on the field a decade ago has absolutely zero relevance whatsoever to the regime that's currently there, the players that are on this team, the schedule that they're playing, and whether or not they'll be able to get it done. And you could certainly make the case that Steve Sarkeesian has, you know, underperformed based on the you know jobs that he's gotten and the pathway that he took to get to Texas. Um, but what you can't deny is that this is probably not probably is the deepest, most talented team with no inherent weakness that he's ever coached in a conference that, you know, doesn't have very many superpowers. And the two superpowers that they do play, um, again, are not peak versions of themselves. So, you know, I look at the information. Um, based on that sort of thing of what does this all mean? What do they have and how for analysis done that projects backward? And, you know, sometimes that's relevant if you're looking at the you know last few years or, you know, the quarterback is the same or there's a coach that has a, a deficient room. Uh, but when I look at it, I, what Texas is known for uh, or what they've done isn't necessarily relevant to me. And also, too, they're also one of the teams – one of the few teams even that have won a national championship in the last 20 years. Uh, and as the talent starts to concentrate toward the top, uh, the, the diverse nature of this sport in terms of national champions is, is becoming fewer and fewer. And it's not like it's impossible there. And they have one of the greatest players of all time, obviously on their team at that moment. But I think that there's a lot to learn based on the types of players that you have, uh, the quarterback that you have who, you know, Sam Ellinger was a really good quarterback, but I think it's possible that Quinn Ewers will prove to be or turn out to be the second best quarterback. And all things kind of add up to a, a result that is better than losing to Kansas state. So obviously we still have to, you know, wait and see and how that goes. And they play a weird Wyoming team this year that already beat Texas tech and uh, it's coming up this weekend. And, you know, TCU is a tough game for them and they've got some weird, road games like Texas Tech, that's going to be like the Super Bowl for the Red Raiders. You know, they have some tests coming up. But, you know, what they have on this team, I think, should be able to, to withstand that. And, you know, now that they beat Alabama, too, they have them all again. So I still think that they could lose a game, uh, win the Big 12, and still get into the playoff at this point. So uh, very nice trajectory for Texas, and I think that it's going to be a, a pretty good situation to follow for the rest of the year. Well, Ari, you're, you're great to indulge uh, uh, some Texas loyalty here. Appreciate it. Um, and, and glad to hear the optimism. Let's talk more generally. You talked about concentrated talent. I'm curious, you are so known for the Stars Matter idea, and we have seen increasing concentration over the years, but we don't yet know how NIL is going to affect that concentration. And there are certainly lots of examples where it feels like it might push back in the other way. You know, if a team like Texas Tech jumps up and grabs a Micah Hudson, a five-star wide receiver, Micah Hudson, he, of course, he hasn't signed anything yet, but he said he's going that way. It's an example of NIL maybe peeling away some of these very good players into teams that wouldn't have been able to get them otherwise. What is your sense of what NIL is going to do to the concentration of these stars that seem to matter so much? Yeah, I think that NIL is an interesting dynamic, and I know that 
Arizona, the school that I went to, picked up a five-star kid from, from Tucson, and the pitch was, you know, local businesses here would rather support a local kid who grew up here who loves uh, U of A, uh, and, you know, that's a pretty lucrative opportunity for you to be the big fish in the small pond. Um, and obviously, as we know, the, the concentration of talent is so uh, important. Two years removed from Texas, they had 18 of the top 100 players in the country. Um, I mean, when you think about the numbers on that, 18% of the top 100 players in the country, literally one out of five went to one school. And then you add in the Alabama, the Ohio State, the Georgia results, and you have, you know, 65 to 75 players uh, in the top 25 um, or or the top 100 picking schools that um, are all the same. So it's just a very interesting dynamic. And, you know, that's also shifting with the, with the transfer portal as well. So every single time a, a five-star player or a top 100 player picks a non-traditional power, you're flattening the, the talent base uh, or the talent advantage that the Alabamas and the Texases and the Georgias have, which then makes upsets more prevalent and uh, more diverse results more likely. Now, that is kind of a funny thing to think because we're now we're going into a playoff era where everybody gets in and the upset is kind of less um, it is interesting to see how the talent uh, disparity is changing because even the Florida State team this year, who I think also has a chance to make the playoff, um, is built by um, their five core players, and I think four out of the five or all five are from transfer from programs. Right. So their their talent on paper doesn't necessarily stack up with an Alabama or a Georgia, but you have three or four players who transferred in who are three stars or zero stars who are going to be Heisman finalists and top five picks in the NFL draft. So that, to me, if you can plug and play some of the misevaluated players or players who are, are uh, playing above their uh, ranking, then you can kind of even the playing field that way as well. So, you know, I think that the bottom line with NIL is this, that the vast majority of players uh, who are coming out of high school are probably – uh, more prone to an astral because they were draft and the NIL money offered up front is probably peanuts in their mind in comparison to what their first NFL contract is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, we did a study at the athletics this summer where we went back through the, um, you know, five-star prospects from the previous decade. And there's no proof in the data that going to Georgia, Ohio state or Alabama makes you more likely to get drafted as a five-star prospect than it would be to go anywhere because those guys are freak athletes uh, and they are just, you know, so good um, at such an early age that something almost has to go wrong for them to not get drafted. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, it's a good observation. You know, it, it, it's just an interesting dynamic because, I mean, if you just go look at the quarterback situation in the NFL right now, um, you don't uh, have a very clear and identifiable route to becoming a star in the NFL. I mean, one of the best players of the position went to Wyoming. The other one went to Texas Tech. It's not like you have to go to Georgia to go. I mean, in fact, Georgia doesn't right. have a star in the NFL back position on Stafford. Well, you know, recruiting is a very complicated thing, but sometimes the complication of it makes it a little bit easy to get lost in the numbers. And with the proper context, it all kind of makes sense. And, you know, you do have to have a certain baseline of talent to win a national championship, but to answer your question in a long-winded answer, uh, NIL and the transfer portal certainly can help kind of make it more competitive rather than, you know, the national championship game uh, being decided by 50 points like it was last year. Right. And it already feels like this are so early in the season, but it does feel like we have um, some fresh faces um, in the playoff conversation as early as it is. Look, one, one, a couple, one game in particular I want to hear your thoughts on from this past weekend is the A&M Miami game. A&M probably had the greatest uncertainty of any power five program coming into the year, given what's going on in the coaching staff. And they went out and dropped a game. They were, they, they weren't favored by that much, but four or five or something like that. And they drop it by a, a healthy margin against a Miami team that people thought were probably still a, a year or two away. Um, when we, when we look back at this game at the end of the season, what do you think we're going to say? Are we gonna, was this the beginning of Miami being really good, or is it just going to be a little bit of a surprise? And maybe A and M isn't as bad as they looked. Maybe they, maybe it's just a few bad breaks. What's your interpretation of what happened in Miami Saturday? Well, that's a that's a complicated game because it wasn't just like uh, bad luck. You know, I mean, they gave up forty eight points. So, uh, you know, the thing that was most interesting to me about this game was 
the amount of pure talent uh, that A&M has on the line I thought would have been enough to overwhelm Miami. Um, and the most ironic part about this whole thing is that Jimbo Fisher spent the entire offseason discussing what he was going to do to fix that team's offense. And, you know, lo and behold, they come in and DJ Durkin's defense gets shredded by Miami, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, there's a certain aspect of this of like, well, I figured out financial resources standpoint and an IL standpoint, facilities, location, geographical access to recruits, all of that stuff. They've got every advantage in the world and they just can't seem to, close, uh, to uh, piece it all together. So, you know, when you, you look at, uh, a team like Miami, there's also a uh, a team that's kind of in a similar situation when it comes to building and location and, you know, all those things. And, you know, I think that this will be a revelatory game now I, in, in terms of what I think of uh, Texas A&M. I think that this is just another exposure that something's off there because I thought there was a legitimate chance this team could go win 10, 11 games this year, just based on the, on the pure talent. I mean, Evan Stewart, uh, Connor Wegman, the defensive pieces they have on the line there. I mean, it just goes without saying that, you know, they would be a really good football team, and it just didn't look like that on Sun- on Saturday. So um, I'm excited to see if Miami's good, you know. Teams that should Think about Florida State, Michigan, and all these new teams that haven't traditionally been in the college football playoff discussion are all, like, rising to the occasion right now, and that's an exciting proposition for the sport as well. Mm-hmm. It, it is it's just more fun when Miami is doing something down there and isn't disappointing week after week. Um, one last question for you, Ari, but it's a complicated one. And that is, what are you expecting to come out of the PAC 12? It's the most interesting conference race, at least at this point in the season with arguments to be made for any number of teams to come out of there and USC. I just got to look at our, our model for the first time that breaks, it breaks teams down offensively and defensively. And we have USC, with the best offense in the country by far, like a good couple of points better than anybody else. And then they have an almost a little bit better, but almost uh, NCAA average defense. I mean, it's a huge disparity between the two. Can they, is, can they do that? Can it, can that, can that, can that be, uh, is that offense enough? And if not USC, if you had to put your chips on somebody out there, who, who would it be? Yeah, that is a, doozy of a question to end off of because it's the hardest question to answer because you know on paper it looks like USC should be the team with the way that they play offense um and they had one of the worst defenses I've ever seen in my entire life last year and they still were maybe a Caleb injury uh, Caleb Williams injury away in the second half in Vegas against Utah from winning that game so um I mean I guess my guess right now based on the way that it seems like USC's defense has improved week over week that I would uh you know, potentially go with the Trojans to come out of that conference, but I'm pulling something up on my phone right now. I want I want to read it to you, um, and this is the hardest part about it because uh, for how good USC is, they've got a very challenging schedule coming up. Um, mm-hmm. The first half of the year is a joke. They're going to beat teams 56 to 10, you know, like they did the uh, Saturday. You go look at their full schedule here. Got a bye week this coming weekend. Uh, and then they play Arizona State, and then they've got an interesting game against Colorado on, on, on September 30th, which is a little bit more interesting than we thought it would be about a, about a month ago. Uh, but here's starting on uh, in mid-October. At Notre Dame, at home against Utah, by week against Cal, then Washington, Oregon, and UCLA all back, back, back. Like, mm-hmm. if you look at the way that their schedule is situated, I don't even know if it matters if they're the best team. I just mm-hmm. don't know if you think that that defense and that team can win you know, five out of six of those games, you know, yeah. that's a really hard proposition to be put in. I mean, Washington, Oregon, and UCLA all in a row to end their season. And that <laughs> doesn't even account for the big, the PAC 12 championship if they make it like that <laughs> is really, really, really hard. Um, and the thing that you'll say about the PAC 12 and, you know, I'm not a uh, revolutionary by any stretch of the imagination because it's pretty as day. Shador Sanders at Colorado. You got uh, Jaden Delora at Arizona. Uh, Cam Rising should hopefully be coming back for Utah. Michael Penix at Washington. Bo Nix at Oregon. Uh, you know, Dante Moore is, is an emerging freshman at UCLA. I mean, they've got the best quarterbacks in college football, which, uh, you know, I think is a uh, pretty easy way to make an assumption that if you've got the best quarterbacks, you're probably going to have some of the best teams. And, you know, that's the case. My guess right now would be uh, USC. 
Uh, but I look at that schedule and I second guess myself all over again. And of course, Washington too um, is another team that you have to keep in, in, in frame because they are uh, some of the most exciting offensive uh, performers out there. Michael Penix throws about as beautiful a ball as I've ever seen. And if they can figure out their defense a little bit, they're going to be dangerous too. So, and you know, here I go again with Oregon and you know what they do. So uh, I think that that is, a conference placing it. Well, and they, they're they playing an unbalanced schedule out there, so it, SC gets a tougher draw in a year where the draw might end up determining things. Plus, they have the tougher yep. non-conference. And so just on strength of schedule alone, you might put the chips on Washington, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Ari, uh, listen, man, we'll let you go. Thank you for making time for us. It's a fun time of year. Love the work that you're doing. Hope to talk with you more down the road. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Ari Wasserman at The Athletic. You can catch him there. You can catch his uh, podcast until Saturday. Until Saturday, he does that with a number of collaborators there at The Athletic covering uh, the national beat for college football. Shane and Adi, y'all were good to indulge. I didn't know we were going to do that much at University of Texas stuff. I didn't intend to do that much at University of no, Texas No, I mean, I, honestly, it was nice. I mean, I haven't been following much college football since I got back from out west, so it was nice to just listen. You, you seem well, to be enjoying the conversation. Yeah, too. yeah. I mean, I, 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 I did not want to interrupt, nor did I have anything to contribute. You know, you indulge us, Eric and I, on the Yankees so frequently. It yeah, lets yeah. You the time. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, like, I, I'll well, just say I, Tom Brady, and we'll all know what we're talking about. Yeah. Ari <laughs> knows that I come from a Longhorn family, and so he, um, he, I think he just kept going down that road. I wouldn't even ask him the questions. No, and I mean, honestly, this whole season's got me hyped about Texas. You know, well, I, I mean, they, I, 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 it's as you sort of said, it's just nice. I think as, as a more casual college football fan that doesn't have allegiances bred in, I, like it's nice to just see some new players. You know, like you know, it's not just kind of the, you know, the there's, usual there's kind a, of group right. of people, uh, teams at the top. And there's more. Penn, Penn State is very serious. Washington is serious. USC is serious. Florida State is serious. I mean, it's a it's a fun. It seems season. like an exciting time in college football. There's just so much in the mix, both structurally and kind of on program wise that's right that's right all right team that has been another hour here on sirius xm another hour of sports analytics for the whole team eric bradlow who slipped away the second half for shane jensen and Adi weiner who we heard for the whole time this has been Cade massey big thanks to maddie datz the boss man for Dion simpkins to Dion simpkins who does all the hard work around here and to you guys for listening come back and join us next time between now and then enjoy your sports <laughs>